Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1. Moreover, God said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. The scroll was the word of God. God was saying, ingest it, let it be your, uh, your food, let it, let, it, let it sustain you. And listen, you have two tigers living in a cage. You have the tiger of the flesh, the tiger of the spirit, and they're warring against each other. Which one wins? The one you feed the most. And the way you feed the tiger of the spirit is with the word of God. And that's why Job says, hunger for God's word more than your physical food. Could you imagine if we read as much as we ate? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be spectacular? If we would all engage in a Bible study and in a, in, in a fervent study of the word of God, not just in study, but in application, could you imagine what would happen to our, our community, let alone our culture? Wouldn't that be fascinating in your generation? Take, take root in your life in such a way that you have a fresh vision of the Lord. Faith, by the way, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. The more time you spend in the word of God, the more faith you have. The stronger you are in your ability to turn a culture, to be a mover and a shaker. And God says, listen, I caused him to eat the scroll. Ask God to give you a hunger for his word. Let me repeat that because I, I don't want to move on until it is sunk into your, your noggins. All right, we're going to repeat it. God, give me a hunger for your word more than my physical food. Let's do it. God, give me a hunger for your word more than my physical food. One more time. God, give me a hunger for your word more than my physical food. Would you continue to do that through the week and ask with a fervency and see what God does? That is verses 1 and 2. He said to me, Son of man, feed your belly. Fill your stomach with the scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey and, and sweetness. I couldn't find my one-year Bible. I went and ordered another one. And, and my mornings and my day do not go well if I'm not in the Word on a regular basis. When that arrived, my, my heart leapt. There, there's just something that draws me to this one-year Bible. I like the format of it. I, I enjoy it. It's where God draws me. It's my personal time with Him. This is, this is how God will feed you. Have the Word ready. And there's, there's food you like. So have them there, accessible, right? When you're on a diet and you don't have the food you're supposed to be eating, you're going to go for the stuff that's easy. Yes? And then you're going to find yourself in the daily bread and getting your little, you know, scriptural breath mint. No, get into the Word. Get into the Word. Verse 4, Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. How can you speak words that you haven't studied? How can you speak words you haven't ingested? How can you speak words that you don't own that aren't a part of you? And this is what God has done to Ezekiel. This is what he'll do for you and me. And now we're equipped to go and speak this to the community. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to those of the house of Israel, not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of a hard language whose words you cannot understand. I listen, I'm not sending you to a foreign land. You don't have to learn Japanese. You don't learn, have to learn Lugandan. You don't have to learn any of those languages. I'm going to send you in your own neighborhood, your own community with the words that I've given you, and there's not even going to be a language barrier. It's going to be real simple, Ezekiel. I know you're in Babylon. You don't have to be part of the Chaldean language. You're just going to speak to the Israelites in your familiar language. This is what I've called you to. That's really primarily where he's called all of us. The best missionaries are indigenous. And you're all missionaries. Amen? But here's the ticket. Not many people, verse 6, of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. That just means they're stubborn. And I'll tell you what, have you ever tried to share the gospel with your unsaved family? 
at a, at a holiday meal. That doesn't go over real well. And a prophet is without honor in his own country. And you have to be real wise in how you inject that and, and how you add that. And a lot of us just love to be irritating so they don't bother us. And then somehow we think we're martyrs because we're, we're poorly treated in our family. You know, you're poorly, poorly treated in your family because you're rude. You know, one of the best ways to, to preach the word in your family is to do the dishes. It's to be a, a, a proper house guest. To, to carry your load and your weight. And then they, they come to you. And, they, and one of the most powerful witnesses to my family is my wife. My mother struggled with everybody. She never struggled with my wife, ever. Maybe once, but she was completely wrong if that was the case. <laughs> but you do that by service, and this is, this is what he's doing. But the house of Israel will not listen to you. So he's equipping him. And listen, you're, you're not going to be warmly received. Welcome to America in a postmodern world. But you're still supposed to speak. Watch. They're going to be impudent and hard-hearted. Verse 8, Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces and your forehead strong against their foreheads. You're going to butt heads, but yours is going to remain intact. Theirs will break. I'm going to put a steel plate in your forehead. A little odd, but that's what he's going to do. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your foreheads. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. They're going to sneer at you. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. So what? It's like thick skin and a thick skull. It doesn't phase me. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm rubber. Your glue bounces off me, sticks to you. I, I've got a hard head. It doesn't, you can say whatever you want. And, and you're going to yell at me until you love me. And a missionary goes where he's not loved but deeply needed and leaves when he's no longer needed but deeply loved. Just go and love on him. And they're going to spit at you and they're going to mock you and they're going to ridicule you. So what? And they're going to be hard-headed. They're going to be adamant. They're, they're going to be impudent. Do, do you hear me? What does this sound like? What does this sound like? Sounds like us, but it sounds like politics to me. I mean, it does to me. I know exactly where I can face this kind of an audience in moments. It's an election. I may not be completely pro-Trump, but I'm pro-life. That divides a room. That's awful. Divides a room immediately. And people have an opinion on that. Behold, I've made your face strong against their face, verse 8. Your forehead strong against their foreheads like Adam and Stone. Rebellious house. Now go down to verse 10. Moreover, God said to me, son of man. Now remember, son of man means what? Pile of dirt, right? I'm God, you're dirt. And he doesn't mean that to belittle him. He's just saying, you know, unless I build the house, you're laboring in vain. So let's understand where you're getting your strength from, Ezekiel. Receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. So you receive it, you hear it, and where does it go? Into your heart. You know, the problem with seminary is they, they fill your head, not your heart. The amazing thing about learning ministry while doing ministry is it fills your heart and then your head slowly gets filled. But your heart has to be touched. And, and it's amazing how we can intellectually, you know, from, from a seminary education, be able to reach people on an intellectual level and think somehow we're accomplishing things, but it's the heart that moves people. He says... Receive into your heart all my words that I speak to you and hear with your ears. How do you know it's reached your heart? Well, that's the, that's the center of emotion. You've been touched. 
It moves you. It moves you. What moves you? Do, you? do the comments of your friends move you or your enemies? What silences you? Does God's word open your mouth or does, does the words of, of, of your opposition silence your mouth? What moves you? Are you moved by culture or are you moved by God's word? What is your heart affected by? And if, and if it's not moved by the Lord, you haven't seen him. He hasn't moved you. Ask him to move you. Receive into your heart all of my words that I speak. Now, in our heart is the embodiment of the word of God, Jesus Christ, for those who have called upon the name of the Lord. And, and according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, how are we saved? We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes? Yes? Okay. Let's take a look then, because it goes on to say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And why were we saved? We are saved. We are his workmanship, his poema, his poetry, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Good works. God prepared beforehand for us that we would walk in those good works. Let's see what those good works are. I think that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 will tie in with what we're about to see in Ezekiel 3. Um, Verse 11, And go and get to the captives, to the children of your people, and speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or whether they refuse, it doesn't matter. I've just told you to go speak to them. We, we, we We bring Christ to men. God brings men to Christ. Salvation is a miracle of the Lord. We just, our job is to preach to them and to share with them. Whether they accept or they refuse is between them and the Lord. Verse 12, then the spirit lifted me up. So God does the work. And I heard behind me a great thunderous voice, blesses the glory of the Lord from his place. I also heard the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another and the noise of the wheels beside them and the great thunderous noise. So the spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. I was struggling by Ezekiel saying, I'm struggling because they're not going to listen to me. There's a bitterness. Why, why, if they could see what I see, why, why would they reject so great a salvation? I can't fathom your ignorance and your stupidity. I can't fathom why you don't understand this, is what he's saying. And, and yet the Lord's spirit was strong upon him. And you know how you know the spirit of the Lord is strong upon you? You have a love for the people you're preaching too. We love to prove them wrong. That makes our flesh feel better. Oh, and I love, I love to be an apologist for the Christian faith. How many people you've seen come to the Lord? None, but I am. I'm a prophet in my time. You're irritating. Speak the truth in love. They go together. Yes? Okay. Speak the truth in love. Then I came to the captives. Fascinating. Captives. We can use that in a number of ways. Captives because they are exiled in Babylon. They're captives of the Chaldean Empire. Captives to sin captives to a world order that is different than what God desires, yes? And we're called to go to the captives. Why? They'll know the truth, and then what? Then what? The truth will set them free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How will they know unless someone tells them? Yes? Don't answer this. I don't even want a noise. How many people you shared the Lord with this week? Don't say anything. 
That's the spirit ministering to your heart right now. It's not condemnation. It could be conviction. It could be praise and encouragement. It's either conviction or encouragement. It's not condemnation. Amen? Let's move on. I came to the captives at, the, at Tel Aviv who dwelt by the river Chebar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them for seven days. I sat with them. I endeavored with them. I commiserated with them, and I was astonished by them. I, 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 I remained there. I was among them, and, and I dwelt with them. And I'm astonished by their stubbornness. It's exactly as God said. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me. And here we go. This is going to be a a text we're going to focus on. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. And you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life. That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I'll require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will delivered your soul. And the Lord, then the hand of the Lord was upon me there. And he said to me, arise, go out into the plain and there I shall talk with you. Now stop for a moment. God appoints Ezekiel as a watchman for the house of Israel. And he says, go and speak to the wicked and deliver their souls and speak to the righteous and deliver them from sinning. And if you do, you'll be praised. And if you don't, what will happen? You want to reread it? We can do that together. I know it's Wednesday. Stay with me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to the wicked from this wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Who's guilty? The prophet who doesn't speak, who doesn't warn them of the direction in which they go. Did you hear that? Oh, but stop, Pastor. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll preach this, Bailey. The idea is, wait a minute. I got my get out of free card. I'm saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yes. Amen. But you are his poema, his workmanship, Yes. And why were you created in Christ Jesus? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Yes, you're, you can remain silent and you still go to heaven. The scripture declares that it's by grace through faith you've been saved, not of works lest any man should boast. He has been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. This isn't a, a scripture of, of a losing of your salvation. The picture is, you see the wicked going in their direction and you say nothing. It's, it's on us. We're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, 
It has no purpose but to be trampled on. And the church is being trampled on. We're the moral preservative. If we don't speak or stand in the way of the direction of the wicked, we're guilty. Oh, pastor, don't go getting all political on me. That's, that's the purpose of the church. Stop the wicked. Warn the righteous. Do we? I mean, God is saying we don't do this. Their blood is on our hands. Again, a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him. He shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, will not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man, and the righteous man should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also, you have delivered your soul. The hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, and go into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. You're a watchman. Now, I looked up the concept of watchman. A watchman had great responsibility. He sat in a high place in the, in the tower of the city, especially at night when extra vigilance was needed and the rest of the city slept. Other defenders would sleep. So he would keep watch of, a, of an impending enemy. What is an enemy of a culture? What's an enemy of, an, of America? All enemies, foreign and domestic. Would, would dishonesty be an enemy of a culture? Would deception be an enemy of a culture? Would murder and lying and stealing be an enemy of a culture? What if we educate the culture that all of those issues are situational and depends on how you define them? Is that destructive to a culture? Is there right and is there wrong? Can we teach our children that? Then why don't we? Why are we silent in declaring to the school board locally why are we silent? I'm not, I, I don't, let's, let's erase everything national and state. Why are we silent? Why is this not important to us? What teachers, who do you pray for by name? What schools do you affect? How do we establish right and wrong in the culture of our community? What are we doing with the athletic programs to make a difference? What are we doing? And, and, and the idea is we're watchmen. We're the ones who keep watch when everyone else is sleeping. The culture has fallen asleep to morality and what is right and what is wrong. We're awake. You're here. You're disciples of the, of the living God. And we sit in those places and we keep watch over the community by those who would seek to do ill to that community. With a watchman, it was presumed that the community was safe from surprise, attack, because of the watchman. He would sound a warning if an enemy approached. I'll tell you a prophetic warning. If you continue doing this, this will happen. If you teach that we have, we have evolved from apes, children will come to a place where there will be no morality, no absolutes, and they're going to act like animals. And no one will be shocked. And the people that will be, people, those who will be irritated will be the gorillas, the apes. Don't blame us. But 
have we leveled a warning? Are we vigilant on the city gates? Do we protect the populace while they sleep? Oh, but they're stubborn in their heart. Yes, they are. I know they are. But are we there? Are we doing anything? Can a culture continue to operate in this capacity, spending more than they take in? Can we tax ourselves into prosperity? What are the scriptural significance and how do we warn a community? I don't, I'm not speaking state or federal. I'm talking about right here, our little community. And this is what he's saying. The idea is you're a watchman right where I've planted you. I'm going to put you in the plains and this is where you are. And more ideas on a watchman. If you were sleeping in the city, what kind of a, a watchman would you want on the tower if you were sleeping? Somebody you probably wouldn't want to have dinner with because they're so militant and irritating, but doggone it, they're the people you want on the wall, right? Yes? Oh, they're too militaristic for me, and every time I talk about it, all they're talking about is weapons and guns and keeping vigilance and looking out for all these things, and, and they're always talking politics, and they're always talking about all the issues in the community, and I, you know, I just want to have a good time. So not necessarily somebody you want to have at dinner, but there's certainly somebody you want on the wall. Yes? And so you put them on the wall. Those are the people that you want. Uh, you want them alert, dependable, focused. Now, what if a watchman doesn't do their job? We just saw a sheriff deputy um, lose their badge and their gun because they were dipping into the medications in the deposit there at the, the station. And, 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 and as Sheriff Dean pointed out, it's, it, it's not so much what they did, it's who they represent and how it demeans the entirety of the force itself. Because law enforcement, fire personnel, all of our civic servants, servants are to be trusted. When you break down that trust, that wall, you can't sleep at night because you don't know who the enemy is because they're wearing a uniform, right? That's why it's of great importance. And that's why it affects the entire department. Yes? But if he does not do his job, what if he was too embarrassed to wake people up? I mean, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to think I'm silly. I mean, it, it seems like there's movement, but I'm not really sure. And I'm, I'm not... If you're too embarrassed, I don't want you on the wall. If you don't know how to distinguish what, what an approaching enemy is, it's dangerous. What if you're afraid of hurting people's feelings? Could you imagine that? A, a seasoned, you know, sergeant in, in the Marines, you know, take that hill. I don't like the way you said that to me. That really hurt my feelings. I mean, it really just hurt deeply. Why are you here? Did you not go to boot camp? I did, but I, I, was, I was part of the library personnel. You want somebody who's bold? You want somebody to take control of that? Is diligent? not concerned about hurting feelings. They're not afraid. They're concerned about people dying. They're concerned about the welfare of the city. What would you think of a person with such responsibility who failed to do their job? Same way we feel about that sheriff. Teachers that betray a confidence. Public servants who betray a confidence. It affects the whole community. What would you think of someone who allowed thousands of people to die without a warning? happens every day especially in our county nobody says anything 
handful of people with signs. I'm going to read to the end of the passage. Um, and then I want to share with you two stories. And then we'll conclude tonight. Look at um, verse 22 again. The hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise and go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I rose and went out into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there like the glory which I saw in the river Chebar, and I fell on my face. And then the Spirit entered me, set me on my feet, and spoke with me, and said to me, Go, shut yourself inside your house. And you, O son of, God, of man, surely they will put ropes on you and bind you with them, so you will not go out among them. And I'll make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and not be one to rebuke them for their rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear and he who refuses, let him refuse for their rebellious house. And God's saying, look, they're not gonna want you to watch over them. They didn't want Churchill. They wanted to believe that Hitler was gonna be fine. They loved the ideas of Neville Chamberlain. They wanted government to do everything for them. They didn't wanna take personal responsibility. They ridiculed, they mocked him, they put him in isolation. And they're gonna do that to you. And even worse, they're gonna bind you and, and, and you're gonna be thirsty, that your tongue will stick to the roof of your mouth. There's gonna be times where you're gonna to wanna to be silent, but by my spirit, I'm gonna cause you to open your mouth because you can see the beginning from the end because you've seen me and I'm the embodiment of all there is. And I will guide you and I will strengthen you and I will lift you up and I will empower you. This idea of being a watchman and being a warning to a stiff-necked and, and stubborn people is quite a calling. And let me read a couple of things to you. This is out of Jeremiah chapter 6. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in those old ways. Also, I set a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people and the fruit of their thoughts because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. I'm going to make you a watchman. You're going to declare to these people saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet, but they will not listen. We're still supposed to be faithful to the calling. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. You can be a watchman for the city, but if you're going to do it in your own strength because you know, you're somebody who's been politically savvy and you're going to make this happen in your own flesh, you're, you're wasting your time. If you think you're going to manipulate and move some sort of a political you know, machinery to accomplish this, you're going to fail. Unless the Lord builds a temple, you labor in vain. You need a fresh vision of God. You need to spend time feeding upon his word. Otherwise, you're a watchman who is watching in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. If stuff like this keeps you awake at night and you can't sleep, God will give you rest in the midst of your trials. Behold, the children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And the idea of the psalmist when he says the watchman stays awake in vain, and the idea is that unless the Lord builds a temple, we labor in vain. If you want to lay awake and think that somehow you're going to raise godly children because all it's going to be about your kids, and you're going to worry about every detail and do the helicopter parenting and hover over them with every detail and purell your hands every time you touch them, it's not, you're not building a generation of kids who understand faith. You're not sending them into a, into a culture where they're going to be able to stand in the midst of a culture that's in decline in a postmodern world. 
Teach them to stand upon God and to trust him and to have a fresh vision. Otherwise, they lay awake in vain. And they're going to be just as, as, as nervous and as frightened as you are. And they're going to carry all of your neurotic tendencies as a parent into their parenting. Because you hovered over them and you just didn't let them do anything. Let them experience what it's like to testify to their, to their generation. Let them step in the middle of it and be able to define the, the issues that they're dealing with in their day. But, but feed them God's word by all means. Show them the significance of it. And build that foundation, but give them the opportunity to be that arrow to shoot into a generation you'll never see. Um, the Apostle Paul, in regards to this idea of a watchman, Acts 20 starting with verse 25, Paul said, and, and indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no, no more. Therefore, I testify to you all this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Just like God said to Ezekiel, if you do what I tell you to do, you're innocent of the blood of all men. Paul was innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. How can you declare a counsel you haven't studied? So study his word so you can declare his word. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We studied that. Diaconus, which means that you are overseeing the assembly of people in a community. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, appoint men who will rise up and speak, uh, they, excuse me, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Let people know that they're going to reap what they sow. It rhymes and you can remember that. Jesus said in Luke 21, starting with verse 34, he said, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And again, Isaiah 62, I have set a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. And you will make mention of the Lord and do not keep silent and give him no rest till he establishes until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. And I have to tell you, being a watchman and to, to speak the whole counsel of God's word and you, you speak sin and you speak judgment, you speak about forgiveness, you speak about heaven, you speak about hell. These are topics that the people don't like to hear and they're gonna write you letters and they're gonna you know, give you issue but we're watchmen and we have a responsibility to a community. And where Ezekiel was placed in Tel Aviv, we're placed right here in the Conejo. And we see what a watchman does and they give warning and they're to be trusted while the rest of the people may slumber in their iniquity. We warn them in impending danger. That's our job. We've been called to that. That's our poema. That's our workmanship. It's good work. It's our duty. Two, two men will close with this. One is a man by the name of Elijah Lovejoy. Kind of a cool name. Anyone know who Elijah Lovejoy is? Anybody know who Abraham Lincoln is? Elijah Lovejoy deeply inspired Abraham Lincoln. Let me read to you about Elijah Lovejoy. He was born in Maine in November 1802. Um, he was the first of nine children. He met a violent death exactly at the age of 35. 
He was murdered on November 7th, 1837, buried two days later on what would have been his 35th birthday. Elijah Lovejoy had become a clergyman and moved west to St. Louis in 1828. For the next years, he was the editor of an abolitionist newspaper. He founded the St. Louis Observer, which became an influential Presbyterian voice. But when Elijah's articles denounced slavery, the anger of the townspeople forced him to flee across the Mississippi River and to settle in Alton, Illinois. Who was from Illinois? It was a congressman from, yeah, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln. Settled in Alton, Illinois, there Elijah established the Alton Observer and continued advocating gradual emancipation and the abolition of slavery. Twice crowds came and destroyed his printing presses. When a committee pressured Elijah to leave town, Lovejoy replied, you may hang me, you may burn me at the stake, tar and feather me, or throw me into the Mississippi, but you cannot disgrace me. I and I alone can disgrace myself, and the deepest of all disgraces would be at a time like this to deny my master by forsaking his cause. That's a watchman. Now count the cost. And when you count the cost, you may end up like Lovejoy and like the next person I'm about to read. But count the greater cost of standing before the Lord and the millions of people that you weren't a voice for. Because we want to remain silent to avoid conflict. He's a watchman. He's sounding the clarion call of the master's voice that no man should be enslaved because of the color of their skin or enslaved at all. About 3 a.m. Tuesday morning, November 7, 1837, a steamboat Missouri Fulton unloaded a new press for Elijah. Winthrop Gilman, Elijah's supporter, allowed him to place it inside his warehouse, a brave move since it was full of costly merchandise that could be destroyed if a violence erupted. Having safely landed the press, Elijah Lovejoy and his friends thought that the threat of violence was past. Elijah comforted his pregnant wife with his assurance, and he and the others prayed. But talk in the town was rough. Fearing violence, Elijah and Gilman moved their families. Gilman organized a small band of men to defend the warehouse and asked the mayor for help. A drunken pro-slavery mob formed. They ordered Gilman to give up the press or watch his warehouse burn. Gilman said he would defend the press with his life. Elijah agreed. The violence started with stone throwing, soon escalated into shots. From inside the warehouse, one of the defenders shot a young carpenter boasted he would get the abolitionists. The young man died 30 minutes later, shouting, burn them out. The mob tried to set fire to the roof of the building. Their first attempt failed. At their second attempt, Elijah stepped out to drive away the man with the torch. Immediately, he was hit by five shots, two apparently from doctors, hidden behind a wood pile, and died almost at once. With the building on fire and their leader dead, most of the defenders fled. The mob fired at them, but they escaped. One wounded man was saved with a tourniquet. The mob smashed the press. One of the doctors danced a jig as Elijah Lovejoy's body was carried home. The murder of Elijah Lovejoy was a big mistake by the pro-slavery mob. John Quincy Adams wrote that Elijah's death was like an earthquake shock that would be felt not only across America, but in the most distant regions of the earth. The murder swayed northern sentiment in favor of abolition. Senator Henry Wilson of Massachusetts declared that the murder of Elijah Lovejoy made it clear that the bitter pro-slavery forces would stop at nothing and that the slavery question would be much more than just a bloodless clash of ideas. This grim prophecy was fulfilled 25 years later with the outbreak of the Civil War. Lovejoy was the first white man killed in the fight against slavery. Abolitionists had been attacked before, but he was the first of their number to be murdered. This changed the very nature of the struggle. It was no longer one for simply the black American, but one for the basic constitutional rights. 
Similar cries came from abolitionist papers across the North, and support came from every, uh, came even from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Missouri. Abolitionists such as Wendell Phillips and William Lloyd Garrison took up Lovejoy's name as a banner, and even the young Abraham Lincoln was deeply moved by Lovejoy and delivered a speech referencing the murder and mob justice. I hope I am overwary, but if I am not, there is even now something of ill omen amongst us. I mean, the increase, increasing disregard for law which pervades the country, the growing disposition to substitute the wild and furious passions in lieu of sober judgment of courts and the worse than savage mobs for the ex, exec, uh, executive ministers of justice. This position is awfully fearful in any community and that it now exists in ours. Though grating to our feelings to admit it would be a violation of truth and an insult to our intelligence to deny accounts of outrageous, outrages committed by mobs form the everyday news of the times they have pervaded the country from New England to Louisiana, and they are neither peculiar to the eternal snows of the former nor the burning suns of the latter. And they are not the creatures of climate, neither are they the confines to the slaveholding nor the non-slaveholding states alike. They spring up among the pleasure-hunting masters of southern slaves and the order-loving citizens of the land of steady habits. Whatever then their cause may be, it is common to the whole country. And Lincoln went on speaking of the mob lynchings of black men mentioning Macintosh by name and Lovejoy, and he concluded even at this early stage of his life that slavery, whether the enslavers or the slave hunters, were the cause of the violence. And it deeply instilled in him, and he went on to be a part of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And we know, because of this watchman, Elijah Lovejoy, that my son-in-law, who's half black, is not enslaved, nor was his father, and nor will my grandson be. And we think, oh, what an injustice. But we're silent. Our, our citizens waiting to come into our country via the womb are slaughtered every day. But nobody's moved and there's no clarion call and no watchman. No one's keeping watch. There's no salt. Christianity's simple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's parents discouraged him from studying theology. He's from an upper-middle-class German family of doctors and scientists, and going into the ministry was not thought to be fitting profession among their sixth, for their sixth child. It was a good thing for the modern church that Bonhoeffer was determined in his course. There's no doubt that Bonhoeffer is one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. Bonhoeffer's thoughts are powerful in and of themselves, but even more so in the context of his circumstances. As a pastor in Germany in the era between World War I and World War II, he saw firsthand the subtle shifts in the German church and the German consciousness, of which the church spoke nothing to. Many of Bonhoeffer's actions seemed nonsensical when viewed in an objective eye. He split from the German church to form the confessing church. He got involved in, the, in an assassination plot against Hitler as a minister. He returned to Germany from the safety of the U.S. right before the war reached its worst, and he was deeply influenced by a black church and the abolitionist movement, by the way. So Lovejoy even affected Bonhoeffer. He was willing to go against the norm and undergo suffering for his people and for the God he was committed to following. He was a man who, by the end of his life, really understood the cost of discipleship, and he famously wrote about it. On April 9th, 1945... Bonhoeffer was killed in a concentration camp just a few months after his 39th birthday, but his legacy continues even today, 71 years after his death. Bonhoeffer's life challenged to us 
all to pursue justice even when it's not popular, to care for and defend the persecuted and to relentlessly follow God's leading. And let me share with you just a couple of things. These are words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the fight between justice and evil, taking a neutral stance and being indifferent is the same as siding with evil. How do you feel about abortion? Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless, Ezekiel 3. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. We're not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. How do you do that? You have to get involved in the machinery of the system. The ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. Watchmen. When all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing if not an unending struggle of the spirit with every available weapon against the flesh. What weapons don't we exercise? We don't even, we don't even have to have weapons of violence. We have weapons afforded to us in our culture we can use that we don't, that the spirit can dictate. But our apathy to have a neutral stance so as to avoid conflict and people disliking us because we're a watchman to a stiff-necked and stubborn people. It's no excuse. Because we'll be held responsible. Indifference is the same as siding with evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Finally, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. That's Ezekiel. All we're called to do is be faithful and to speak, to be a watchman, to warn people of impending crisis, danger. You continue on this path in wickedness. If you turn from your righteousness to wickedness, if you don't repent from your wickedness to righteousness, listen to me, people. Our community will suffer. I'm on the wall, and this is impending doom, and it's dangerous. Say something. Do something. Speak. Because the only way the captives will be set free is to know the truth. And the truth is not pleasant to a stubborn people. And you got to stop the machinery itself. Not just to help the people under the crushing wheels of injustice. You've got to stop the wheels itself. We must. And then finally, the only way you can do this, and the only way I can do this, 
The only way Dietrich Bonhoeffer could do it is unless the Lord builds a temple, we are wasting our time. You must feed upon God's word, have a fresh vision and a calling from him. Otherwise, you're going to lay awake in vain and be worried and nervous. And there'll be no rest to your weary bones. Cast your cares on me, for I care for you, says the Lord. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. All we need to do is stay plugged into him and be obedient to him and keep our eyes on him and feed upon him. And we can do this for his glory. This won't shake us. None of these things will move you. You won't be moved by the culture. You'll move culture. That's Ezekiel 3.